Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. and I am the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy to have as a guest today Deirdre Stanley, the Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Thomson Reuters Corporation. Deirdre has been the GC at Thomson Reuters since 2002, but has also served as a lead business development and strategy officer and as an M&A lawyer, both in-house and in a prominent law firm. So there's lots to explore. Deirdre, welcome to In-House Legal. Thank you very much, Randy. It's great to have you here. Uh, I know that these recordings are timeless, but we're on the eve of the Thanksgiving holiday, so thank you uh, for spending some of your compressed time with us. Well, I'm grateful that you would ask me. Deirdre, it's always helpful for folks to give us a little bit about their route to the GC chair. Will you uh, tell us about your legal education and and the steps you took right after law school, what, what you decided to do? Sure, Randy. I mean, I would like to say... I had this mapped out, but it's not at all true. Um, I went to law school immediately after I graduated from Duke University and and went to law school up in Cambridge, um, Massachusetts. And I had a great experience at at Harvard, and um, but wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my legal education. I really went to law school as kind of um, you know a backup plan. Um, uh, the idea that you can always do something with a law degree was what I'd heard, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it. But I was fortunate enough to have a couple of summer associate positions, one of which was in New York City. And I deliberately came to New York um, because, you know, I wanted to come to where the bright lights and, you know, the big city was. Um, And I had a great experience at a law firm uh, doing litigation. I say it was great because it was very um, illuminating. I really didn't know what at all went on in these big law firms. This was a firm that was about 400-plus lawyers, which at the time was probably bigger than any law firm in the state that I had come from. And so I was doing complex um, litigation. And being a junior associate, what that means is I was doing a lot of um, memo writing and and, uh, a bit of due diligence as well. And I had an opportunity to to do a couple of weeks um, of corporate work. And that's when I really think I started to feel like I could have a law career as opposed to, you know, do something else with a law degree, because I really took to the idea of law and business coming together. And so from there, I, when I graduated from law school, I went to another uh, prominent law firm here in New York City, focusing only on corporate law, um, thinking that in a couple of years, I'd probably leave and go back south. After a while, it was quite clear to me that I wasn't going to know very much about corporate law in just a couple of years here in New York. And so I ended up spending six or seven years at um, a law firm trying to decide 
kind of what my next step might be. And I really thought about being at a law firm almost, um, Randy, like having a postgraduate degree. Um, the good news was that they actually paid you which they, you know, obviously you're paying them when you go to school. Um, and so I was just soaking up as much experience as I could possibly get going through various rotations like banking and um, and project finance. And it was when I started doing mergers and acquisitions and met some in-house lawyers um, that I really started to think that that was a career that would be one that I would be well-suited for. So Whoa. I left the law firm. Go ahead. No, no. I was wondering, what was it about the in-house lawyers? What was the appeal of in-house? So you were at Cravath. We don't have to pussyfoot around the, the tremendous law firm you were at. But what was it that appealed to you in particular about being in-house as opposed to being the, the pro from Dover at Cravath? Well, I mean, I think it's really a personal preference. And for me, what it was, Randy, was that when I started doing mergers and acquisitions, the in-house folks that I worked uh, with were clearly um, in very strategic roles at their company. And again, I was a lawyer who kind of went to law school as a backup plan because I couldn't figure out what exactly I wanted to do. And the whole concept of strategy and looking at um, the business from the long-term perspective really appealed to me as opposed to just looking at it from the transactional perspective, which was the lens through which I saw it at the law firm. And so the in-house lawyers who were doing um, mergers and acquisitions in particular, and I was doing some work with one um, company, and I could see this kind of transaction after transaction, we're doing all of this in furtherance of um, um, a roadmap of opportunity that the company was looking at. And so I started talking to legal recruiters. Um, it was very, I was very fortunate back then because legal recruiters always called big firms like Cravath to ask, uh, you know, if associates wanted to go in-house or go to other places. And I started telling me, look, if you can get me an in-house job where I would be doing nothing but M&A, then that would be really terrific. That would be a really sweet place to go. And so, in fact, I did get an opportunity to go to a predecessor company of the company that you were at, Randy, a company called GTE. Yeah. Um, uh, to be an in-house mergers and acquisition attorney. And that was terrific for me. And how long did you stay at GTE? I stayed at GTE for a couple of years. And I was doing a lot of telecom M&A. Um, and then I had an opportunity to go to another company, which is now best known as IAC. When I joined it, it was USA Networks at the time, uh, Barry Diller's media and e-commerce company. And the reason I moved there was because I realized that this concept of only wanting to do M&A was actually narrower than uh, you know, the career I wanted to pursue. And what I mean by that is that I couldn't figure out how I could get my boss's job. My boss at the time was the deputy general counsel. If the only thing I knew how to do was M&A. The department I was in at the time was a pretty structured one. And so the opportunity to get experiences outside of M&A, what, what was a little bit more challenging, and more importantly, it wasn't so clear that those opportunities in that particular company at that moment in time would have necessarily been better than some other positions that I could have gotten uh, elsewhere. And the nice thing about being at USA Networks or IAC at the time that I was there was that I was part of a small corporate team. I went in as deputy general counsel, and I was able to do mergers and acquisition, but I was also doing a little employment law, and I did a little bit of securities work. And so it was really calling back 
on my um, old cravat experience where you might get thrown into lots of different kinds of situations and just have to uh, figure it out. And that was really fun. And it so was did- there, Randy, that I had the experience um, doing a little bit of business development. And that was outside of the legal department at that point? You were, you were sort of double-hatted? I was double-hatted. It wasn't outside the legal department. I actually, um, as I mentioned, I went in as deputy general counsel at USA Networks, and I was doing lots of corporate stuff. And what I mean by that is I wasn't doing commercial contracts. I wasn't doing a lot of the work that an operating company in-house lawyer might do. I was doing a lot of the more quote, strategic stuff, which you'll remember is what I said that I wanted to do. But again, in thinking about how to broaden myself and my career, um, when I had an opportunity to move to an operating company within IAC um, to a division, I really jumped at the chance because it would just broaden my skill set. And this was a newly formed division of the company, and they were really trying to figure out what the business model would be. And I was working more and more with the folks in business development as well as the president of that division. And at some point in time, uh, when the position came open to actually run business development, I got to kind of add that to my legal role as well. So that's how it came about. I think it's just kind of being open um, to opportunities and showing a bit of curiosity beyond what my immediate responsibility is, which you know, if you're do, if you're at a, if you're at an interesting place, isn't so hard to do. Yeah, I think that Deirdre and I, you know, Deirdre, I, I support what you did 100. percent I think you and I have talked in the past about how important it is if you're in house to be open to those opportunities and to be willing to stretch beyond what you think your you know what you think you know how to do already. Uh, it's, it's the only way, really, to, uh, to, to advance opportunistically uh, at, at, a, at a company. I agree with that. And, um, you know, corporations, especially today, uh, Randy, are, are so big. And it really is required as you move up the ranks that you have experiences looking at that company from different vantage points. And that was, you know, the beauty of the years um, that I had at IAC in particular. You know, I saw it from the senior corporate level, both as the deputy general counsel and just as a senior corporate executive. I saw it from the operating division level. You know, those are the people who have to make the money, right? And you see the pressures on bringing in revenue and also the risks involved and think about how to manage those risks. And, you know, I saw it from the business development side as well. How do you ultimately, if you're a lawyer, and this is one of the hardest things when lawyers move to a business role, is even though you know that risks are there, and a lot of what lawyers do in-house as you know, Randy, is proactively manage the risks. Even though you know the risks are there, how do you shed them and let some shed the, the preoccupation with them, right? You want to be cognizant of the risk, but how do you manage that aspect of your awareness while really driving um, for the revenue? So it's a balance, and some lawyers really can't make that shift, in, in making the revenue the, the predominant thing that you're looking at, always, of course, managing the risk. Um, but if you have to do it, I think it's a particularly great um, training ground in an odd way for being a general counsel. 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, people people tend to forget that there's no there's no way to make money unless you're willing to take some risk. So uh, that is the great mind shift for in-house lawyers is is turning the preoccupation with risk into a, a putting it in a in a little bit of a box so that you can uh, make judgments about risks on other items and on other factors and figure out how to make your company some money. So, how long were you at uh, USA Networks? So I was at USA Networks for um, about three years, maybe a little bit longer. And, and then Thomson Reuters came up, or it wasn't actually Thomson Reuters at the time, was it? No, it wasn't Thomson Reuters at the time. You're exactly right. It was the Thomson Corporation. And I had never heard of the Thomson Corporation. A, re- a recruiter called me a headhunter. It was you know, one of the large business search firms. I know a lot of legal recruiters. I didn't know anyone at the large search firms at the time. And, you know, I'll tell you a a kind of a funny story. I thought I was doing a pretty good job doing business development, but I was still filling my way. So when I got this call from the search firm, I said, geez, Louise, somebody who actually likes me, you know, said, let's try to get this girl another legal job before she really screws this up, (laughs) this business role. But um, (laughs) actually, it wasn't uh, somebody who was trying to get me out of the business position. It was an old um, colleague who I'd worked with who had gotten the call from the recruiter initially, and when he wasn't interested in the job, said, well, who else do you know? And I think I mentioned that, Randy, because I think it's another point that your listeners might find of interest, and that is in our legal world, it's a pretty small community once you get started um, in it, and every transaction, every engagement where other lawyers are involved is actually a bit of on-the-job networking, if you will. And it's, it, it's, it's part of building your resume, even when you don't think you're building it, because so many opportunities come about by, by word of mouth or someone asking someone, who do you know who has this skill set or who might have had these sets of experiences that, you know, people, we're often called upon to go to, you know, our memory and say, well, well, you know, who did I use, who did I work with either on my side of a transaction or elsewhere who might be well suited for that? So that's how the role came up. I had never heard of the Thompson Corporation, but I had heard of a lot of its brands, such as Westlaw. And uh, at the time, a company called Thompson Financial had a number of products that I knew from uh, being around uh, the, uh, the the financial services community a bit. And it was a company that was really transforming itself from this Uber portfolio of companies, which had been in all kinds of industries like oil and gas, newspapers especially, and had a little bit of business called professional publishing and really doubled down on that when it, when it bought West Publishing, um, probably about five years before I joined the company. It had sold off all the other assets and it moved whole, um, wholly into this space of professional publishing, although more and more of it was being electronically delivered. And what, what they said they were looking for was somebody to come in and to transform the legal department into being a more strategic business partner. And if you remember what I said about what attracted me to in-house in the first place, which was that the jobs that people had seemed to be more strategic and looking at the long term with one client, you know, the opportunity to transform a legal department to be more strategic, that was like music to my ears. So it sounded like the dream job. I take it, though, that 
you know, if we were north of the border, uh, we would have known more about the Thompson company, right? I mean, it's it was a it's a Canadian it's a Canadian owned entity that w- at least it was at the time. Sure, and it still is. So we are incorporated on the under the laws of um, Ontario. Um, at the time, the seventy percent shareholder was the was the Thompson family. That interest has been diluted to some extent because of the Reuters acquisition. Um, but at the time, it was it was majority owned by the Thompson family, but it was a public company. It had just listed on the New York Stock Exchange. It was already listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And yes, you're correct. The Thompson family is uh, very well known. And was there a great deal of uh, additional learning you needed to do to, to take over the legal helm of an Ontario company as opposed to a a New York company, or did the fact that it was on the stock exchange essentially level out the sort of uh, public company aspects that you you were more used to? Well, I would say the public company aspects, even if they had not been listed on the New York Stock Exchange, are leveled out just because of the similarities between the laws that we know, uh, you know and, and, and the rules of the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Ontario Securities Commission, and, and indeed all the security uh, commissions in the provinces are, in Canada are very, very similar. There's something called the multi-jurisdictional disclosure system, which, you know, even further levels that out. And you're right, the, you know, the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange have rules that are, that are very similar. You know, the interesting part about it is the public company aspects are very um, significant. Um, but I would note that when I joined the company, and we have a much different footprint now, 97% of the revenues were in the United States. So it was, you know, in many cases, um, a U.S. operating company as far as the day-to-day customers and, um, and uh, the business itself. However, uh, the shareholders were primarily Canadian. Deirdre, uh, you mentioned that when you joined Thompson, 97% of the revenues were from the U.S., but that was before the Reuters acquisition. Could you give us a flavor of what Thompson Reuters business is today? Uh, sure, Randy. In 2008, uh, the Thompson Corporation acquired Reuters PLC. It was a British company. Overnight, with that closing, our footprint did change, um, and we became much more global, which was one of the strategic reasons for the uh, for the acquisition in the first place. Um, and so now, about uh, 55% of our revenues come from the United States. Another 40% or so come from Europe, uh, the Middle East, and Africa. And then, you know, over 10% uh, comes from Asia. So we really do have a, a global reach. Um, and we have um, continue to have that professional publishing as our heritage. But we like to think of, you know, the business that we're in now is is really what we would call intelligent information. Um, and that is because most of our uh, information is electronically delivered to customers um, in various professions and businesses, so in financial services, in legal, tax and accounting, intellectual property, and science. And the information itself is often um, information that comes uh, – that is that – is, uh, 
that is joined with the customer's information to help come up with um, a solution to a problem. Uh, there's a lot of software that underlies um, a lot of our business. And, you know, all of this is powered by the world's um, largest uh, free news agency, Reuters News. We have about 2,400 journalists in the field around the world. And we are, um, that news is powering our financial information products in particular, but a number of our other uh, products and services. And it's also, you know, sold wholesale to various news outlets, whether it's newspapers, television stations around the world. A lot of the stuff you see um, when you look at uh, what's going on around the world is actually, you know, um, uh, television feeds from Reuters News. So I think it's fascinating, you know, there's there's at least some similarity between the digital publishing and the the creation and packaging of content uh, with a greater footprint. But one interesting aspect of the Reuters acquisition, and I, I think, it, and I'd be interested in your comments on this, is that you suddenly became a the chief lawyer for a news gathering agency, which is, you know, we both know the the GCs of various uh, of various press agencies are are spend a lot of time uh, worrying about uh, their reporters, the rights of their reporters, uh, uh, free speech is- issues all around the world. Was that a major shift for you? And and was it an energizing one, or was it one that you? I mean, how how do you sort of think about that aspect of your of your of your job these days? Well, it is a, it is a, a major part of what we do in the legal department. What I would say is that because of the kinds of um, news agency we are, uh, some of the things that you would be most familiar with, um, Randy, that some of the other some of our colleagues who are general counsel of some of the say U.S. based news outlets, right, um, have uh, different challenges. But, but, but our challenges are, for example, in getting, you know, uh, cameras across the border in war-torn countries. It's, um, in some cases, having journalists where, um, you know, their rights to report are not the same in, in, in every country. Um, you know, in cases in, in certain countries, even um, in Europe, um, the rights that we enjoy of free speech um, are balanced in a different way um, with respect to the rights of privacy uh, that, uh, as they are in, interpreted under the laws of other jurisdictions. And so it is a challenge. What I would say is it was, you know, a, an interesting new challenge, but I think that the greater one um, by far, because um, uh, really was in managing and thinking through issues of a global organization with the footprint that we have that seeks to have platforms that go across a multitude of borders. And so, therefore, you'd like to default to common rules wherever possible in order to achieve scale. But in fact, as we know, law is a jurisdictional issue. And so how do we comply with those laws um, in some of our other businesses, whether that's financial services or our legal business, 
you know, that actually takes up more of the time and I think the mind share of the global legal department overall on a day-to-day basis. How have you organized? Do you have many of your reports uh, actually with the business overseas? Are you U.S. heavy on on where your lawyers are? Well, we have a legal department of um, about 235 people of that group, about, you know, 140 sorry, 160 are lawyers. And so when we look at our senior lawyers, they are, for the most part, with the business. And I think about that, um, Randy, not as from a, from a location standpoint, I mean, from a um, intellectual engagement standpoint, we're organized in four different operating divisions. And so, you know, I have direct reports who are general counsel of each one of those divisions. They sit on the management teams of those divisions. And I can tell you in all cases, those are folks who have leadership teams, who have people in various countries and in various various offices. So we have to Um, manage as an organization, even within our business unit, so that we are able to um, work cross-border. And then within those management teams, we have, you know, lawyers who are on the ground in the different regions. I would say the majority of our lawyers are in the U.S. and in London, but I actually did a plan presentation for our 2016 plan, and I found that um, or I showed that about 30% of our lawyers are now in um, the emerging markets or in um, countries such as Australia or Japan, where they are engaging with a, um, a global platform of lawyers. They're implementing um, you know, contracting policy, risk management policies, et cetera, that are um, created centrally, but they're really doing it in a way that works with the um, laws, the customs, the culture of, you know, their individual jurisdictions. So let me ask you about a different aspect of your business with your West Publishing and your legal business, as you call it, there's an interesting potential interaction between running a general counsel's office and being in a business that produces directly to the legal business various tools. Uh, how do you are you a are you guys a guinea pig for the for the legal business? Have you found in in fact new ways of doing things or had had a big effect on the way products come out? Well, I would say yes, yes, and yes. First of all, you know, I can never talk to a group of lawyers without saying, you know, putting on my business hat and just saying, Randy, thank you to all the lawyers who are listening who um, for, for your business at Thomson Reuters. We don't take it for granted and we appreciate it. Um, and so from there, I would say that, yes, we have a great relationship with the folks in product development, for example, um, in, in our legal business. We have one particular product that I love, and it was before we acquired this company. I was a customer of it. It's called um, Serengeti, and it's the way we uh, bill our outside counsel, but it also gives me a lot of insight into how we're spending our money and spending our time in the legal department overall. 
And so I remember when we were looking at that acquisition, you know, I really weighed in very, very heavily as to the value that I thought that that product has or that type of product or business would have um, to general counsel going forward. And it's really been the case. It's been a great um, growth business for us um, in the legal area. Um, Similarly, um, you know, we've had a couple of acquisitions in the last three years where, um, you know, Randy, when you and I were in law school, as we know, this whole concept of the in-house bar was you know, somewhat nascent, I would say. And it's really taken hold over the last 15 to 20 years. And as a result, historically, a lot of the products that lawyers use were really built for outside counsel. Now, with the really sophisticated in-house counsel bar, we're building more and more products, services, suites of services that really speak specifically to the in-house lawyer and in-house legal operations. And so we are surely great guinea pigs, if you will, on that. And I think there are a couple of people, in fact, in our department who fancy themselves and I think do a pretty good job of uh, being product developers and kind of throwing some ideas um, over to the product development team, uh, which has been well-received. So it's great. It's a great relationship. So, Deirdre, let me take you back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation. You always, you when you, when you were talking about yourself and you said that you weren't quite sure what you're going to do with your life, and you went to law school because there's always something you can do with a legal degree. You still think that's the case? Well, I do very much think that's the case um, now. I think that um, there is a lot you can do with a legal degree. What I would also say, Randy, however, is that there's a lot that you can do without a legal degree. And while I'm glad that I went to law school, and I think that this has worked out well for me, I do think that there have been some shifts uh, since I went to law school. So that makes it such that people should just be very thoughtful um, as to why they're getting a law degree. Um, Primary, in my mind, is really the rise in the cost of a legal education, coupled with the fact that in a post-financial crisis world, Um, We have a market that is somewhat oversaturated with lawyers. And so particularly if you looked at the period of 2010-2011, probably up until 2012, would you agree? We saw a lot of lawyers who were coming out of law school with a lot of debt in some cases where it was really difficult to find opportunities that were going to allow them to, um, you know, enjoy a legal career that would have made going to law school worthwhile. Obviously, many people don't go to law school. Perhaps most people don't go to law school only to make money. But having said that, you know, the costs get to a certain level where if either from um, a financial standpoint or an intellectual engagement standpoint, you're not finding opportunities that make it worth your while, um, it's somewhat pro- problematic. So, you know, I, I think it, it makes sense to be very thoughtful about what you want to do with your legal degree if you're thinking about going into law uh, today. But having said that, I think that... Um, There are many opportunities in business. There are opportunities in politics and government where 
the way of thinking that we learn in, in, in law school um, is really uh, helpful um, in, 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 in making a career for oneself. Well, I think I'll leave that as it is. I think, Deirdre, you've, you've, you've demonstrated quite clearly how wonderful it is uh, to have a legal degree because you've had such a spectacular career. Um, and I want to thank you for spending time with me today on in-house legal. It's been a really usually informative half hour. Well, thank you so much, Randy. And I want to thank all of you who have listened to our podcast today. For all of you listeners who would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com or follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you very much. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch. Thank you for listening. And join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.